Thank you for joining us for the Pacific Council's webcast on the emerging crisis at the border. My name is Melissa Floca, and I am the Program Officer for Cross-Border Initiatives at the University of San Diego's Kroc Institute for Peace and Justice. And I'm delighted to be in conversation today with S.A. Werke, who's the Senior Policy Analyst at the Migration Policy Institute. Unfortunately, Dr. Tom Wong, Associate Professor of Political Science and Founding Director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego, will be unable to join us this morning because of an illness. S.A., I'd like to welcome you and to share a bit about your background with the audience before we begin. Uh, Ms. Workey's work focuses on unaccompanied children, immigrant families, and access to local, state, and federal health and human service programs. She previously worked as the Director of Refugee Health and the Director of Planning and Development at the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants, where she established the National Refugee Medical Assistance and Medical Screening Programs in multiple states. Previously, she served as a senior federal official and regional spokesperson for the US Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families in the Mid-Atlantic region, where she led the intersection of human service programs, including refugee resettlement, early childhood development, child welfare, youth, and workforce development. So quite a broad portfolio. Our discussion today comes at a time when the migration crisis at the US-Mexico border has popped back into the national headlines. And as always, there is confusion and polarization around what is actually happening and how policy change and humanitarian efforts can provide solutions or at least protection to migrants. Uh, today, the border remains closed. Undocumented immigrants who are caught by the border patrol continue to be returned to Mexico. Um, but at the same time, the Biden administration is pursuing immigration reform and has suspended Trump's Remain in Mexico program, under which asylum seekers are currently waiting in Mexico for U.S. court hearings. So, S.A., could you provide us with an introduction to your work and how it intersects with all of these many challenges that we see at the border today? Certainly. Thank you, Melissa. It's a pleasure to be with you and all of our colleagues uh, online today. So my work, as you noted, focuses on humanitarian populations, including refugees, asylees, unaccompanied children, and mixed status households within the US. We focus primarily on the, in the intersection of uh, health and human service policies, as well as immigration and integration. Thank you. Uh, you know, something that I think that's quite unique about your experience is that it spanned working with local governments in the U.S. as a social worker to working on international research studies on refugee resettlement. Uh, and there are tremendous risks throughout all of the different stages of the migration process to the development and to the welfare of children. Can you talk about those risks and where we can focus efforts locally as well as at the federal level? Yes, uh, you know, the question takes me back to my, my social work days. I began my career as a direct service provider in child welfare and mental health. And we always use the biopsychosocial model in conducting our assessments and designing our, our services to children uh, at risk. And using that same lens now, there are a few areas where we're, we're really focused on in terms of assessing risk and then 
focusing efforts to protect children against those risks. So if you'll bear with me, I'll just kind of walk us through the biological, the psychological, and the social uh, components of the experiences unaccompanied children have. And, you know, first thing to note is that there's a there's an arc to their journey, right? Uh, we are we as uh, people in the U.S. are focused at, at what's happening in the southern border and in the U.S. But really, their stories begin long before that, and so it's important to think about what they experience in their countries of origin throughout the migration journey, both within the customs and border control uh, detention, apprehension and detention once they're transferred to shelters run by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Office of Refugee Resettlement, and then, of course, once they're released to parents or sponsors in local communities across the country. Something that's uh, worthwhile to note is the longest period that children have in the U.S is within the local communities across the country, not within HHS shelters. And I'll circle back to that point a bit later on. Turning now to the biopsychosocial uh, framework, when I think about the risks that children face from a, a physiological perspective, number one is safety. There are a lot of risks around violence at each stage of the journey that I just outlined. Um, it can be human trafficking, it can be physical sexual abuse, it could be kidnapping, it could be witnessing violence. So safety is really number one on, on the list there of risk factors. And then more broadly, when it comes to health, largely because of a lack of access to health care in each phase of the journey, there are concerns about chronic conditions um, from asthma to diabetes uh, to even developmental delays that may go unaddressed. And now, of course, in the midst of the pandemic, there are concerns about infectious diseases, especially in overcrowded places uh, with poor sanitation. Other biological concerns include access to food and clean drinking water, you know, nutrition and, and hydration. So there's a whole host, there's a whole cluster of risks that children face just from the biological, physiological perspective. And then when, when we think about their emotional well-being and their mental health, there's another cluster of risk factors. And a lot of that has to do with the trauma that they experience at every phase of the journey. The violence we already talked about, and it's very clear from studies in the US around children witnessing domestic violence, what that can do to a, a child and their psyche. Then there are issues around uh, separation from caregivers. While they're in country, even if they may not be with their parents because their parents traveled and entered the US years earlier, while they're trying to meet their parents in the U.S. by migrating, they're leaving a caretaker that has been responsible for them and that they've attached to. So there's a great sense of loss and grief that can affect their um, emotional well-being just by separating from those caregivers in country. And then, of course, the level of uncertainty that they live in through each phase is also uh, quite a burden on one's mental health and can contribute to anxiety or depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, which is 
often um, detected in, in this population. And then, you know, mental health and emotional well-being isn't limited to those things. There's also the point about uh, education, especially for children who are um, at the age where their cognitive development is so keen. A lot of times children will have gaps in their education because of complications around their migration journeys. And even once they enter into the US, there are some challenges around enrolling in school. So there is a risk factor in terms of their cognitive development. And finally, the, the social piece in terms of how receiving communities welcome them. In our own country, we, we wrestle a lot with stigma, xenophobia, racism, and so forth. And so that social component is also very important. Those are the risk factors and there's a lot, it can be quite heavy. So it's important to balance it out with what measures can be taken both at the federal and local levels, as you noted, Melissa, in order to remedy a lot of these risk factors. And you know, at the federal level, it's um, especially within HHS shelters, as I mentioned, the, the positive note here is that the services are comprehensive. They include access to healthcare, mental health care, to education, to nutrition. It's designed really within the child welfare uh, prism. And so they get high quality services while they're in shelter care or foster care through the federal government. Of course, while they're in customs and border patrol, that's a different story. The program is not designed that way as we've all seen from clips in the news media. As I noted before, children spend most of their time in the US in local communities outside of federal custody and care. And so investing in those areas are really, really important in order to mitigate the risk factors that we discussed before, since it's really the first time that children have a chance to breathe um, from their migration journey. And so uh, there are three areas to note quickly in, in terms of local communities. One uh, is schools, another is legal service providers, their lawyers, their immigration attorneys, and uh, the third area is volunteers, the community at large. In schools, we have learned that they serve as a hub for service delivery. Many of the case managers that work with unaccompanied children have noted that because a child is enrolled in school, they're able to access food assistance food assistance, excuse me, as well as physical therapy or occupational therapy or all these other hosts of services that come with individualized education plans. Similarly, with legal service providers, since the attorneys have the longest lasting relationship with these children, they're able to connect them with other services. And in fact, some legal service providers have initiated a hybrid model where they partner with social services mental health services and medical services to both strengthen the immigration case and meet the immediate needs of the children. And then finally with volunteers, uh, through organizational coordination, they can participate in what's called accompaniment or circle of welcome programs so that they walk as kind of a mentor to the family throughout the years that the child is in the US while they're awaiting their uh, immigration case to proceed. Thank you for that. I think before you know, moving on to the next question, I'd like to I'd like to compliment 
some of what you just discussed with what I have seen on the Mexican side of the border. Um, you know, I think that the that the situation there is quite different than than what you've described in terms of the the U.S. Um, institutions that are in place to to provide for for young people, um, and in fact, you know, the policies that the U.S. has in place right now are um, are putting a lot more pressure on Mexican civil society and on the Mexican government to to provide that kind of support. Um, but there hasn't been necessarily, you know, the resources or um, or the time for for the, our colleagues in Mexico to develop those those systems and those networks of support. And so, you know, when the border is closed, when the U.S. stops um, allowing people to to ask for asylum, when we when we return people that are that are caught trying to cross the border to Mexico, whether they're you know Mexican or not then the onus falls um, on Mexican civil society to try to pull together a patchwork of, of the kinds of services that you just described. Um, and that's not something that, that um, there's not as much experience in, in doing that. And so, you know, as a result, you see um, a real lack of, of capacity. There are, you know, there are not caseworkers for children or families um, there are not health services, so you have um, community organizations with very little resources trying to provide safe places for women to give birth, to receive postnatal care, um, for children to, to get access to, to mental health services. And so, you know, over the last year, I, I can say that um, there hasn't been that kind of support for children and families, and I think you know, that's, that's something where when you talk about um, the way that local communities respond, at least at the U.S.-Mexico border, those local communities are often binational um, communities. Certainly they are in San Diego. It's a binational community in San Diego and Tijuana, uh, where there's the added complexity of trying to figure out how to put those kinds of policies and practice in place at the local level, but in an international, uh, in an international context. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Melissa. And if I if I could just add to that, you know, what what I shared are really the promising practices, the the emerging strategies. But really, even within the U.S. in local communities, it's it's not a perfect system. There are a lot of gaps, and there are um, you know barriers to access because of children's immigration status. This is before they are able to get any kind of relief like asylum status or SIJS or something. And um, in those in between stages, they may not have access to health and mental health services except through philanthropy and community organizing. It's certainly not across the board and more could be done in, in that area. I'd like to turn now to um, to talking about what's different under the Biden administration and and what's the same. Um, there certainly is a perception in the community of migrants that um, that things have changed under the new administration. And um, if Tom were here today, he he could tell us about one of the recent articles that he published, where um, you know he basically explains that the in fact there isn't exactly a surge of migrants at the border. Um, it's more of a predictable 
seasonal pattern where you know we always see more migrants at the border this time of year because it's a better the weather is better it's a better time um, to travel and and so that has been coupled with the um, a bit of a perception that that things are different now um, as well as a pretty significant backlog of people who um, who might have migrated last year but who didn't because of of covid um, and so from your perspective i'd like you to talk about how you see things differently now um, do you think that the current administration is doing what needs to be done to to protect youth and families and to um, to make up for some of the increased risks and vulnerabilities that were created over the last couple of years? The short answer is yes and no, and I'll, I'll explain. Let me begin by just speaking to, you know, this um, nomenclature of crisis or challenge or what, what do we want to call what's happening at the border. And then I'll describe a little bit um, just the facts of what's going on once kids get to the U.S. and what more could be done under the Biden administration. So for starters, you know, as, as um, Tom noted in his article, this is not a new phenomenon. 2021 is not the first time that we're seeing an increase in the number of children crossing the border without a parent or guardian. Uh, really, we, we would need to go back to 2012 to see when the trend started to increase. Before 2012, it was roughly 8,000 children a year that would come uh, and go into ORRs, facilities, or shelters. But ever since then, you know, especially 2014, 2016, 2019, there have been these large increases. Uh, and that's what gets the attention. And that's what people often refer to as a crisis. But the, the facts of the matter are that these numbers, even outside of those spike years, have been trending upward for a decade. And so in that sense, it is predictable season to season. It's also predictable year to year. And if we look at it with that long-term view, 10 years out rather than in, in presidential terms, four years, eight years, I think we'll have uh, a better understanding of what might be possible to address this uh, reoccurring situation. And if this is a crisis for anyone, it's certainly a crisis for the children and the families that are um, going through the migration. In terms of the treatment of youth at the border under the Biden administration, uh, I think the Biden administration has the right compass, the right moral compass. They've talked a lot about having a safe, orderly and humane migration system. And while we may not be able to check off every one of those at this precise moment, it seems that we're heading in that direction uh, and the moral compass is right. The challenges, for example, are at the Custom Border and Patrol once the initial apprehension is made. As many of you know, children are supposed to be transferred from DHS CBP custody to ORR within 72 hours. What we're hearing though is that it can take 10 to 15 days in some cases before that transfer is made, which is an issue. Uh, children aren't getting recreational time or you know time outdoors to do recreational activities, and that's not good for their health and well-being. 
Uh, on the other side, recognizing that there's an issue at the border, the Biden administration has queued FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, to help with receiving children, sheltering them, and transferring them to proper care. They've also uh, initiated emergency intake centers to relieve some of the uh, flow from CBP to, while perhaps not ideal settings, uh, improved from the CBP detention sites. And then finally, they're working to release children in federal custody to parents and other sponsors in an expedited fashion. All of those, uh, minus the, the CBP, of course, are improvements from having children languish in makeshift camps at the border, which is what was happening under the previous administration, or even expelling them under the Public Health Order Title 42, as was done under the previous administration. So not perfect, not where we need to remain, but some steps forward. There are certainly additional steps that the Biden administration can take to improve the safety and well-being of children. Number one in, in my book, as I've mentioned all along, is the safety of these kids. And so as the process is expedited to release to parents and sponsors, it's important that the Biden administration puts into place safeguards and um, the backgrounds are thoroughly vetted as they were before and children have the information that they need along with their sponsors to access services uh, and even while they're in shelter that um, the setup is such that supervision, adult supervision is uh, appropriate. So safeguards should not be sacrificed in order for the uh, speed of release or uh, expedited processes. The second area is about strengthening local community services and strengthening the continuity of care from the ORR shelters to a case management program that's called post-release services onto local communities. There are lots of transition points and opportunities for things to drop, details to drop from a case. And so strengthening that would be another way that the Biden administration could ensure that children uh, are experiencing a safe, orderly, and humane migration system. Thank you. Um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Title Forty Two, and I want to take a minute just to to talk about that because um, some people might not be be familiar. Um, and and so currently, my understanding of of the policy as it's being carried out now is that. Uh, when undocumented migrants are apprehended by border patrol at the at the border, um, if it's unaccompanied minors, then they they do go into the U.S. If it's um, if it's families or people who are you know who are adults, then they are immediately returned uh, to Mexico, even when they're not from Mexico. And so, you know, I do think that one of the challenges is that. Um, bottlenecks shift around, you know, so you mentioned that, that youth are no longer languishing in some of the, the um, camps on the U.S. side of the border where they were being held, but they um, are often, that's just happening in Mexico instead. And, and so many times families, you know, have spent $10,000 um, or more to, to make it to that, that point in their migration journey 
Um, and we are really seeing that, that the challenge on the Mexican side of the border today is that we have such a bottleneck of people who've come, um, who've come to the border, who've, who would like to request asylum, who would like to be, um, who would who would like to have their cases heard in, in U.S. immigration courts, and they don't they don't have access to that. Uh, and I think that, as you mentioned, you know, we we see this happen time and time again. We've been watching it for folks who work, you know, here on the border. We we literally physically see it um, when we move back and back and forth across the border. I. Um, you know, I, I will never forget the first time I, I showed up at the border crossing in Tijuana to walk back across to San Diego and, you know, turn to my left and I saw 40 kids and 10 women sitting on the ground um, inside of the border crossing waiting for someone to, to basically come and, uh, and process them. And so I think there we do reel from crisis to crisis. Um, and, and I definitely, you know, I take your point that we, we use all of these terms, challenges, crisis, et cetera. Um, migrants are, are continuing to come. And um, before we started the live part of this discussion, we were talking about, you know, climate change as one of the, the drivers. Um, certainly the security um, situation in, in Central America and other places is another one of the drivers. And so, um, you know, as we look forward to what things will be like in six months from now or what things will be like in a decade from now, um, what do you think needs to happen for us to see real change so that um, we don't have as many vulnerabilities for, for youth and for families? Mm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your experiences uh, at the border. It really paints the picture, I think, for, for all of us. Um, you know, in order to talk about what we can expect in six months or X number of years, I think it's really important to paint the picture around what factors contributed to the current situation that, that are country and, and um, these children and families are, are facing. Um, it, in some ways, it's predictable. In other ways, there was a perfect storm that came together. As you noted, quite literally, there were hurricanes in November in, in several countries in Central America and, and Latin America, which devastated the uh, ability to make money and feed families and added more push factors in addition to the violence um, and sep being separated from, from one's parents. Um, the other piece of this is the pandemic. The reason that the Trump administration gave for implementing Title 42, which as you noted, uh, children, unaccompanied children, are now exempted from that. Another area uh, of the pandemic that's contributing to the current situation with the ORR shelters not having enough capacity to care and house for these kids is uh, pandemic preparedness. So I, it's important to note that uh, during the most recent spike in 2019, ORR and HHS had prepared for 16,000 beds as their capacity. And then uh, because numbers were so down, children um, weren't coming to the US, the number of beds went down to around 7,000, 8,000. 
and it stayed there. It didn't go back up under the previous administration, which kind of sets the stage of why we have a shortage now and why uh, there isn't enough, there hasn't been enough time to build that back up. So I think pandemic preparedness or preparedness in general over shelter capacity is an important part of the puzzle when we think of how to prevent something like this moving forward. And then, um, of course, there are two areas of work that will really make a difference for the future outlook. One is investments in the countries of origin. You know, people are leaving for a reason, as we've noted before, and if children can uh, have safety in their countries of home, for example, some models uh, promote internally displaced people. If a gang cartel has a strong reign in one area, perhaps it would be safe to live and work in a different area of the country, and that could prevent a child or a family from needing to migrate. The other area of investment in countries of origin is what you noted, Melissa, investments in uh, climate change so that when the next hurricane or whatever else comes, then there are resources in place and the government has the uh, capacity and technical assistance it needs in order to meet the, the needs of those who've been displaced as a result of climate change. And then the second area of work um, that has potential is what the Biden administration restarted, the CAM program, which stands for the Central American Miners Program at first, uh, began under the Obama administration in 2014. It operated through 2017 and reunified uh, just under 5,000 children with their parents and or other uh, relatives in an orderly fashion so that kids didn't have to go through the migration journey and experience all the trauma that we talked about before. Now that program, the CAM program was not perfect. There were areas that could be improved. For example, it often took one to two years to complete the process. And there were some safety concerns, particularly for unaccompanied children during that waiting period of one to two years. So I'm, I'm glad to see that it's restarted. It's a good alternative. And I look forward to hearing how it will be improved to address the extended delay times and the safety of the children who are, who are part of the application process. So looking out in, in terms of um, six months, uh, I'll, I'll offer you know, concerns and uh, hopes. And we'll see, depending on the action of the federal, state, local communities, um, which one will actually happen. Some concerns for unaccompanied children in the US is uh, as they are released to parents or sponsors. Just as in the foster care system, there are times when placements are disrupted and the child and the sponsor or parent can no longer live together for whatever reasons. And so what happens at that point? If they don't have the supports they need, um, when times get difficult, it's likely that a disruption will happen. And then that puts the child at risk of homelessness and some actually do experience homelessness. Uh, there is also a opportunity, I can say, for the child protective services at the local levels to work more closely with the unaccompanied children systems 
to make sure that once they're in the community, if there is a disruption in the placement that CPS, Child Protective Services, can get involved and address the children's needs through the foster care system. So those are my concerns six months out with the number of kids that are coming in, the expedited processes that are in place. My, my hopes though, are that the philanthropic community, for example, will uh, do even more than what they're doing to support children and families in local communities so that there aren't as many gaps in terms of access to healthcare, mental health care, and so forth. Uh, another hope that I have is that um, supporters of these children and families will get involved in service providers and become volunteers so that they can mentor these families, help them navigate the social service and health service systems, and just be a friend to them. The power of relationships has been proven through mentoring research. And so applying that into this context gives me hope. Now looking a bit further out into the future, perhaps four or five years out, um, my concern is that if we continue to do the same things again and again, we won't see much change. We'll see maybe one or two more spike years over the next four to five years and continue the, the general upward trend of unaccompanied children entering the US and going through the process that way. The more optimistic side of me uh, is, is hopeful that in four to five years, there will be significant and meaningful investments in country and some of the push factors will be mitigated so that uh, there will be less of a need for children to migrate alone and, and have all that risk. Thank you for that. Um, I think we're just about ready to take Q&A from the audience and you can use the um, you can use the Q&A box at the bottom of the screen to submit any questions that you have. I, um, you know, I want to reflect while we let people while we let people in, uh, type up their their questions. I would just like to reflect for a minute on um, the role of philanthropy and, and as you mentioned, um, civil society does really step in to fill a lot of the gaps and, and to work with the public sector in, in making sure that there is the support that, that families and children need. Um, and I, I've seen that there's also you know, a tremendous amount of secondary trauma for all of the folks that work um, in, those, in those nonprofit organizations who are trying to find um, solutions and, and ways to support to support youth. Um, and so, you know, I think it's really important that we also, that we make sure that we, we look for ways to support the people who are working in those roles and, and providing that support um, as well, because they, they certainly, they certainly need support too. They have a pretty insurmountable challenge every day when they, when they show up at work and, and the pandemic of course has made that even more complicated. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And, and I particularly have concern for attorneys and social workers who are engaging so closely with children and their families. So I would like to turn now to um, the questions that we have from the audience. The first 
um, that we have is understanding your explanation about crisis or surge being a complicated term to use with this situation. Do you think the media and or organizations should use this term? Does it help raise important awareness or is it detrimental to the cause? You know, now we're, we're getting into opinion territory. So I'll share my, my opinion. Um, I think the debate over which term to use is a political debate. And I think it detracts from uh, the issues that, that are um, present and on an operational level. So on, you know, in my view, it doesn't matter to me if we call it a crisis or a challenge or you know, a spike or influx or anything else. The point is there are more children in need and there's a um, bottleneck, Melissa, to use your, your phrasing from earlier, and we need to um, do the work differently so that children aren't um, staying in unsafe conditions for any period of time. I would agree with that. I think um, you know part of the part of the problem with that terminology is the polarization that it drives. So it certainly it does drive attention to to the need, um, and it it can it can help drive you know funding and and response. And but it, I think it also if it's used without um, also providing more of a context to both you know, when it, when, what some of the drivers are or, um, or what some of the possible responses are that, that it isn't always helpful. We have another question from Jane Olson. How great is the need at the border for attorneys to process asylum cases? So here, I think it's important to distinguish between unaccompanied children and children and families or adults without children, right? So certainly for children with families um, and adults that are not permitted in because of the public health order, there is a great need for attorneys, um, you know, pro bono or low cost attorneys to assist and communicate with folks on the Mexico side of the border because um, there really isn't an opportunity for them to get attorneys in the U.S. since they can't be admitted. For unaccompanied children, on the other hand, since they are permitted into the country and taken into federal custody, once they're with uh, the ORR shelters, they're given an orientation to their legal rights, uh, the know your rights um, component. And uh, in some cases, the federal government also funds uh, attorneys and pro bono attorneys. It's not enough. Not all children get it. And we know that the, the kids or even adults who have representation are significantly more likely to have uh, immigration relief as a result of their court proceedings. Yes, and I would, I would add to that um, that there certainly is a tremendous need for, for folks who can provide that support on the Mexican side of the border because typically you know, people didn't need lawyers in Mexico for their asylum, their U.S. asylum claims, um, and that there's a need. You know, language is a barrier as well. And and now, of course, we have um, people from around the world who are in Mexico. So you you need help not just from people who are Spanish speaking, but from people who can speak other languages as well. 
Um, and it's not just about being able to process claims, but people also need know your right support in terms of understanding how to get work permits, how to get the kinds of documentation that they need to access health services and, and other services when they're in Mexico as well. We have another question from the audience. Um, where can we get more information on the current status of the CAM program? The State Department uh, issued a report announcing that they've restarted it. There isn't a whole lot there, but I'll be happy to put the link in the chat. Um, uh, and so maybe it can be shared with the participants that way. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, we have, I think, maybe one last question here, which is what can cities and local governments do, especially border cities, to support unaccompanied children and migrants moving forward uh, and understand what some of the limitations are to that support? That's such a good question. Um, I think just as we were noting earlier about the importance of providing support to attorneys, social workers, and others, it's really important that volunteers and anyone else who wants to engage um, is able to set healthy boundaries with their own well-being, their own self-care, and what's happening at the border, because it can be overwhelming. Um, and so that's very important to balance that. And that, that's something I learned as a as social worker in direct care. Aside from that, uh, I think there are a few actions that, that folks can take. One is raising money for organizations that are uh, providing services and uh, material goods as assistance. Another is volunteering uh, in the ways that we talked about before as a mentor or accompaniment program. And uh, a third is uh, speaking up, you know, making sure that um, you're tracking with what the policies and other movements are at, at the national level and that you're making your voices heard for what you believe is, is right or, or wrong. Thank you, S.A., and thank you to the audience for your interest and for your questions and to the Pacific Council for putting together this conversation today. Uh, we don't have any more questions, so I'd like to go ahead and bring our, our conversation to a close. And I, I hope that the discussion and the information has helped um, everyone in the audience to think more constructively about our individual roles and, and our, the roles of our communities as we, we work together to make sure that we have policies in place um, and institutions in place that can, that can protect migrants and especially children and families. So thank you very much, S.A. Thank you, Melissa.